0: Once, I had been to a party in Stockholm at which a boxer had been present. He was sitting in the kitchen, his physical presence was tangible, and he filled me with a distinct but unpleasant sensation of inferiority, a sensation that I was inferior to him. Strangely enough, the evening was to prove me right. The party was hosted by one of Linda's friends, Cora. Her flat was small, so people were standing around chatting everywhere. Music was blaring from a system in the side.
1: You know, this guy in Norway—he um, spends about uh, ten hours trying to get beer in a, on a hill. And and he's gonna he's gonna tell us about his, his Odyssey just to get this beer and so you played in a band? And you know how he always begins. We should actually do like like the cold open, like Norway. <laughs> it's not the first place you might think of when you you're thinking about world literature. Maybe they're fjords and IKEA and you know, universal healthcare. But it's in no way. way. <laughs>
2: but wait. So seriously, welcome, uh, welcome to our podcast. This is a podcast about <laughs> the life and struggle of Carl and Knausgard. We do not have uh, a title for our podcast yet. I did put it to the people on Twitter. Do you want to guess how many people voted in the in this poll?
1: Thirty-four.
2: That's very optimistic. It was twenty-four. Well, uh,
1: who, what's Who's the Who's the big winner?
2: Okay, so here's, here's the results. The Carl Ove Canals pod got 17% of the vote. Okay. Our Struggle got 33% of the vote.
0: Nice.
2: Struggle in Paradise got 8% of the vote. And Carl, her daddy, got 42% of the vote.
1: I hope it was Carl, her daddy, and I don't know why one of the contenders wasn't my option because mine's comp.
2: <laughs> was that one of your suggestions, Drew?
1: I wanted to, if, it, if I were doing this solo, I would have called it MineCom. You do called it MineCom? Because I'm, for the record, we're both uh, Semites.
2: Well, I think that's as good of a transition as any. Hi, everyone. My name is Lauren Teixeira. I am a Semite, uh, specifically a JEW. I'm also a journalist, and I lived in China for many years before recently returning to the United States to start a podcast with my weird friend from college. Can you introduce yourself now?
1: Hey, folks. <laughs> With the, I spelled folks for the record, F O L X. No, I heard it. I heard it when you said it. You got it? Okay. Hey, folks. um, My name is Drew Oranger. I'm a writer located in Iowa City, Iowa. Currently, writing a so called novel, which is my. It's written in like a nonsense verse.
2: Ah, I see. It sounds accessible. I,
1: uh Yeah, I wanted to commit, I wanted to preclude myself from ever achieving any success, so I decided to write a novel and nonsense for right, I a, think you were already well out of way. I don't think you had to try to write a, <laughs> a
2: purpose yeah. of novel to make yeah. that happen. Um,
1: I decided to begin podcasting also because I believe that the podcast is sort of the, the more animating form of, of the moment. <laughs>
2: That's a perfect transition into our next segment of this introduction, which is why, in the midst of a pandemic and a popular uprising against state violence, the world needs a podcast dissecting every page, and we are going to read every single page of this memoir, of a morose Norwegian man's 6,000-page novel about standing in line at a coffee shop and feeling emasculated. So, Drew, our first reason for starting this podcast is that we are unemployed, correct?
1: Unemployment's a big, a big motivating force here. <laughs> Although, I'd, I mean, I'd preferably like to keep it that way. I mean, I have a I'm a sort of, I'm allergic to peanuts, as, as is Lauren, actually. Yeah,
2: that's kind of what but brought us together, I'm, actually.
1: Yeah, and I'm even equally allergic to work <laughs> in the conventional sense. My last job I lasted all three days at. Uh, of course, I was living with an old man. There's this other question that I kept pondering which I think you felt too, which it's just, we want to account for the strange, compelling nature of these books. Why are they so engrossing?
2: Exactly. And that's the more, that's the more kind of theoretical thrust, if you will, of this podcast is why do we like these books? Why do we think they are good? Why does the entire literary world think they're good?
1: I definitely like a theoretical thrust is my favorite way to (laughs) thrust.
2: Oh man, I feel like we're back in Ralph's office. Ralph like, can we establish Trap. Ralph? Can Trap. we establish
1: who Ralph is? Ralph is as a, as a character in our. Ralph,
2: Ralph is the Ralph life. is the invisible third interlocutor in this podcast for sure. Didn't he talk about waking up on the operating table?
1: Oh God, yeah.
2: I feel like that's something that would happen to him.
1: And uh, that's not all. He also claims that he had a after his hip surgery, a bat flew into his wound. Like What? Words, they just oh, I have not. I like,
2: haven't heard that one. Jesus Christ! Is that how we got the coronavirus in the United States? <laughs> yeah.
1: yeah, it's all because he yeah, had some like oozing. The
2: <laughs> bad VRL. Thing. The next reason is, and I think this is the most important reason for starting this podcast is that this particular moment in time is a vindication for our man Carl Ove Why? Because the nation of Sweden. It's getting absolutely owned by the coronavirus. They are <laughs> dropping like flies over there. The death, this is a thing I copy-pasted from cbsnews.com. It says the death toll from Sweden's outbreak is now the fifth worst in the world per capita. The country's mortality rate from the coronavirus is now 30% higher than that of the United States when adjusted from oh,
1: shit.
2: And For those of you who may not know, although I don't know why you're listening to this podcast if you don't know this, Carl ovik nasgaard has a long-standing... Uh, quite virulent hatred of uh, the nation of Sweden, uh, the Swedish people, and Swedish culture. And much of the book is devoted to the contemplation of what exactly makes Sweden such a terrible place. But uh, Mm. just to give you, so this is from early in book two, and he is, I believe the context is he is attending his child's friend's birthday party, uh, an event to which I think maybe 150 pages is devoted. And he says this, what a stupid fucking idiotic country this was. All the w- young women drink water in such vast quantities. It was coming out of their <laughs> They thought it was, scare quotes, beneficial and scare quotes, healthy. But all it did was send the numbers of incontinent young people soaring. <laughs> children, children ate whole wheat pasta and whole wheat bread and all sorts of weird coarse-grained rice that stomachs could not digest properly. But that didn't matter because it was beneficial. It was healthy. It was wholesome. Oh, they were confusing food with the mind. They thought they could eat their way to being better human beings without understanding that food is that food is one thing and the notions food evokes another. And if you said that, if you said anything of that kind, you were either reactionary or just a Norwegian. In other words, 10 years behind. <laughs> what do you think of that, Drew?
1: I find it interesting when Berg goes, I don't think of him as a kind of a rantor. I I, I'm not, I think of him as sort of like placid, these. Or stumped in a way as a writer. So I forgot that he could achieve that that kind of invective but I'm happy he does here. I mean it's odd that it's reserved for Sweden.
2: It's always reserved for Sweden.
1: We hardly see him ranting about people necessarily or his or his Yeah, father, even his or
2: disgusting his... abusive alcoholic father does not come in for <laughs> as much. <laughs> no, it <laughs> doesn't engender
1: this level of of vituperative emotion yeah in fact I, I you know i don't know why but i might talk to carl carl woozy and say you know maybe you should create a new draft of my struggle which is if he just extracts the anti-sweden rants and makes a new book out of that
2: sure yeah like a kindle single
1: like a kindle i don't even know that a kindle <laughs> thing i should write a kindle, a kindle single, single? I imagine he has, like, a tab on his phone that every day shows him <laughs> the death rates in Sweden, and he, <laughs> and he starts chuckling, and, and every time he gets an update, and he says, and he has another 20 deaths.
2: <laughs> he just has a tab open on his computer as he's writing, and he kind of just looks at the line graph and, you know, smiles a little bit because of actually <laughs> is writing.
1: The Swedish quinoa of sheep
2: so yeah r.i.p to sweden um congratulations to carl Ove. And are we uh, also
1: are i i don't really i'm wary of making claims like this but you know in the line of in this moment more than ever now more than ever that i keep seeing in the uh-huh. media i'm wondering like are we sort of in a canada's guardian moment because of <laughs> course. Well, that's what I was just like,
2: trying to say is that we are gonna canal guardian
1: i'm I'm making a different argument. I'm saying because of quarantine, which has sort of lapsed, or I don't know that discourse is kind of over, but you know we're sort of
0: re- oh are we all
2: Karl Ove now are meeting, we all you know
1: and, and like these these sort of mundane details achieve this like yeah vibrational energy that they wouldn't otherwise have but I'm, I'm not saying I stand by this argument it's the kind of thing that no, I were totally, read in the- I totally
2: do see that as an argument that maybe would be in the style section of the New York Times
1: exactly it's like a New Yorker
2: yeah why article. we are all re-reading revisiting Canals in quarantine
1: why we need Carlos Knausgaard now <laughs> more than ever
2: I think we actually have to get on to call our our man in Oslo my friend Robert Russ to talk about pronunciation I think I probably should have called him yeah, stay
1: tuned. I love the sound of Listener,
2: Norwegian. stay tuned.
3: Alright, yeah, I got the headphones in now. Yeah. Do you guys hear me okay?
2: I can hear you. you. You're actually, your sound is coming in much better than Drew's. Look at me. Rob, the reason why we had you on is because you're a, a real-life Norwegian, and we have a lot of questions about your country, your culture, your language... Uh, because we're a we're a very serious podcast, isn't that right, Drew?
0: Yeah,
1: eminently rigorous.
2: We're an eminently rigorous podcast, and we're also uh, a very culturally sensitive podcast,
3: and mm-hmm. so this
2: is important to us. So I want to start with the question, Rob. Why don't you have a funny little Norwegian accent?
3: <laughs> well, why, why do you uh, sound like
2: an American frat bro?
3: It's because I am that as well. Uh, I'm okay, but Norwegian. are these
2: two things reconciled?
3: Very carefully. No, I um, I've just moved around a lot, so I kind of got uh, you know, I grew up here uh, for part of my childhood, and then I went to the U.S., and then I came back, and then I left again. So I've and are kind you of been
2: um, on on both sides.
3: I'm mixed. Yeah, my dad's American and oh, okay. my uh, my mom's Norwegian, but I was born here.
2: And can people in Norway tell that you're of mixed blood?
3: No, not really, but it it kind of comes up really quick, you know, like uh yeah. I think when I was a kid i I never had an accent on my Norwegian, but I had an accent on my English, so I did have like a, a you had English a Norwegian
2: accent, accent when you were a child
3: Yeah, when I was like before I' had lived in the us oh, you I spoke with them because someone told me after uh, after I'd been in the US for like a year or two they were like, "Yeah, you used to have a really funny accent when you first came." <laughs> and I, it kind of just went away immediately. I was like, "What the hell? Why didn't anyone tell me?" It's like
2: Okay, so we've established that you are but you are a Norwegian citizen, you're a speaker of Norwegian, and so you are qualified to answer the questions we're about to ask you, even though you don't sound that way. So our first question is obviously his name. So K A R L.
3: Karl. What? Karl. It's like karl? you you kind of Karl Carl. Oh,
1: this is going want the R.
3: Oh, you kind of just swallow the R. It's like Carl. 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 Car, and then like really enunciate the, the L at the end there. Carl. Carl. I feel like I have it. Carl.
2: Sorry, Carl. 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 Car. Car. Oh, you can
3: just say Carl. I mean, but yeah. No, no, we
2: insist. We insist to the point of making other people uncomfortable. That's how authentic. <laughs> O-V-E. How do you pronounce that?
3: O-V-E. Uva. Uva.
0: Uva. Uva.
2: Carluva.
0: Carluva. Carluva.
2: Have you even been paying
0: attention? I'm trying to.
2: (laughs) No, try it, try it. Carluva.
0: Carluva.
2: Carluva. Carluva. Wait, one more time. That's what Carluva. 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 And for the grand finale, his fucking last name. How do you say that?
3: Fucking nice. Knausgård.
2: What? Knausgård. Good. Knausgård. Good.
3: Yeah, because Knaus uh, when you get the two the two A's make like a O sound.
2: O. Knaus you know good. we have our
3: special, we have special letters in Norwegian. Yeah,
2: what is the little letters. dot on top of the A?
3: That's an that o. O. o.
2: It's just o. called the O?
3: Yeah, the O. It's uh, and it's pronounced like that. And then we have the the o with the line through it. That's a, uh That's ö. Uh. And uh, yeah, ö. Uh. It's okay. like like how you see like uh, you know, like Swedish where they have like the the o with like two dot two dots over it.
2: In umlaut, yes, I know what
3: that's called. Yeah, 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 yeah umlaut. Okay. There you go. ö
2: uh. uh.
3: And then we have ä ah. ä, ah, which is uh, a an a with a little e on the end of it.
2: An a, like, a with a little. Kind of jammed together
3: yeah yeah
2: yeah yes i am familiar with that i've
3: one. seen those
2: i would say my favorite is the one with the line through it i feel like that looks pretty cool
3: yeah the uh yeah it kind of rocks it's like nope mm-hmm. wait how do you it's pronounce that up.
2: again uh. the, the line
3: through uh. it thing.
2: yeah
3: uh. Uh. Uh.
2: okay so can you say his last name again
3: uh no
2: what <laughs> <laughs> canals. Is that? But a particularly that, morbid, like New Jersey accent. It's like good, yeah. Canals good. Oh, canals, good.
0: Hey. Canals, hey.
2: canals good. Yeah. Actually, when I tried to do it as a New Jersey accent, I feel like it comes out better. Hey, Wait, can you say it again? Hey,
3: Canals good. Canals good. Canals
2: good. Canals good.
3: Canals good. Yeah. Canals good. Okay.
2: And now, can we have trouble you to say his entire name?
3: Carl Ove no, good. Oh,
2: fucking
1: A.
3: we are going
2: to get this dude?
1: That's, I was just calling him Ter- Carl.
2: We can call him KOK.
0: Carlo. Carlo.
2: Carl Ove. Hey, Carlo. That was good.
3: That
1: Carlov. Is Knapsgord an especially rare name or. Are there multiple Knazgard clans?
3: <laughs> um, I, I would assume there are other people called that, but it's like a, it's kind of like a, uh, yeah, kind of like an older style last name.
2: An um, older style last name. Expand on that.
3: Uh, well, I think like a lot of the, um, a lot of the older Norwegian names, because everyone in Norway was a farmer up until like the, still like 1800s, right? Knazg god means uh, farm. So oh, I would assume okay. that, yeah, like way back his family or whoever started his, that wing of his family must have been at Knaus Gord, the Knaus oh, So there was like a
2: Gord named Knaus.
3: Uh, I mean, I'm just assuming, yeah.
2: No, I, we, we take you at your word. That's, that sounds right to us. But we, we intimated, we got at this a little earlier. So Carl, he, Carl, Carl has. That's
1: good. You, you're getting there, Lauren. Thank
2: you. Thank you so much. Do you hear that, Drew? Drew's not even trying.
1: I'm I'm, I'm a lazy sort of slack American that just has to go at the con, Charlie.
2: Orange. Didn't people in France Charlie. call you
1: Orangé? <laughs> yeah, it was called Orangé. That was very romantic.
2: Yeah, but. I'm a, as a, as a person whose last name is pronounced incorrectly, about 99% of the time, I'm very sympathetic to being a Caucasian with an unpronounceable last name. So for that what reason. What are you called? Texera. People always pronounce it as Texera.
1: Oh, doesn't it mean fisherman? What? Your name means fisher. I think. A does it? I think
0: it How does. dare
2: you accuse my ancestors? Of no, I'm,
0: I'm serious. It means fisherman. Well,
2: I looked it up once. It's like a type of tree or something. But it it is it is a very common name in Portugal. It's like a Smith. It's like you go to like Teixeira Autobody auto body or whatever.
1: Lauren Smith.
2: Yeah, that's base. That's me basically.
1: Thank God it's not.
2: Um, except, no, if I was a basic Portuguese bitch, I'd be named, like, wait, I don't want to name one of my cousins. I don't want to dox one of my cousins. Okay, let's just move on. Uh, Norwegian, okay, so, Karl Ufa, he has two first names. Why do Norwegian people all have two first names, like, fucking hicks? Answer.
3: Yeah, it's, it's not, like, it is very, very common, like you said, but I think, uh, it's some. There, some of them are done tastefully, and some of them are not done tastefully. If that makes sense.
2: Interesting. Like,
3: uh, like Karl Uva, I think, is like, that's like normal. Uh, it it sounds very much like somebody's uncle's name. You know. Okay,
2: somebody's uncle. Um, yeah. And I sense.
3: think I I definitely do think that Nat, like, like a lot of people from like more hick parts of uh, Norway, like when they name their kids, they'll give them the two name things, but they'll give them like. Hilariously, like, like just two, two names that are bad enough on their own. That, okay, so give uh, us an
2: example.
3: Okay, so I I ran into this guy uh, or this guy's name online in like a newspaper article recently. His name was Kaiet Kai Rogir. What? And I also and I've also seen Kim Rogid, like Roger Rogir, is how we pronounce it in. Uh, Norwegian. You call it Rogir
2: in Norwegian.
3: Rogir. Rogir. Oh Jesus Christ, okay. You gotta roll those R's. Roll yeah, I got it.
2: Roll.
3: Roll, roll but yeah, they so like kids my age that don't live in the fucking boonies are not gonna be named like getting those like terrible names. But I think a lot of a lot of people's uncles and dads are called that. Like it's a very like uh like forty, forty something year old guy kinda named that.
2: To, be, to specifically be named Kaluva or to be named uh, for two first names?
3: Two, two first names.
2: Okay, so people in your generation maybe don't have two first names.
3: Yeah, it's not, well, it's not, it's just not as common. Like now when it happens, it's like, if you yeah.
2: you have to put a percentage on it?
3: Of like people my age or people? Yeah, uh,
2: of in your generation.
3: Ooh, ah, probably not more than like 10%, maybe. Okay. 15%.
2: So, but yeah, but you can't just call someone by their first, by the first of their two names. You have to do both.
3: Oh no no no! The, yeah, because it's not—it's very much not a middle name. Like that it's, is yeah, their first not, name. It's, it's like in like Chinese. If
2: someone's name is like Chang, you can't just call them Zhu. You have to call them yeah Zhutang. yeah yeah. You have to say no. Them.
3: It's like a think of it as like a there's there's always like a dash, right? So it's like yeah, you have to smack them together. Uh, okay,
2: so it's basically hyphenated. Yeah. So they they go yeah. together. They cannot be separated. And for that reason, we cannot call our podcast Carl her daddy because it is completely inappropriate and doesn't use his real name. Is right. that true? I hear it unclear,
1: although I like the name.
2: Are you okay? I like...
1: Yeah.
2: <laughs> oh, sorry, Rob, what were you saying?
3: No, I, I was saying I, I voted for Carl Her Daddy very much. I think that's uh, great. I, I was my
2: creation. think it would be great if his name was really Carl, but it's not. And we're trying to, you know, have some verisimilitude in this podcast. And I think it would just be disrespecting of his name to call it Carl Her Daddy. We could call it Carl Her Daddy. But then,
0: that,
2: but then that's not really. It doesn't trip that's off the
3: too, top. That's too. yeah. That's too far. But yeah. but I just think I like combining bar stool and scored.: yeah. I want I want scored to go on call on call on call her daddy. Dude, I wanted
1: um, to do a pizza review. Oh my god! you,
3: you yeah, uh,
0: we're
3: here with uh, <laughs> we're here with Carl Ovi Knudsgaard, Thirty uh, Fourth Street Pizza. Forty uh, <laughs> we'll Fourth we'll Pizza out.
2: Review. The cheese reminds me of a smorgasbord I ate in Kristiansand in 1981. Father was standing over the table. He looked at me. I looked at him. We did not say anything, for there was nothing to say in those days. And the smell of pine wafted from the, from the yard, and my neighbor Jan Bieder, he too was eating a, a lutefisk. Is fishing important to you, Rob? What, do you, what does fishing mean to you as a Norwegian?
3: Uh, it's deeply important to me. No, I'm not a big fisherman, but I do like eating fish. I just had some for dinner, actually.
2: Do you ever, have you ever caught a fish?
3: Yeah, when I was a kid, yeah. I remember going to the, like, getting, like, a starter, like, fishing rod and going with my grandpa, like, where we have our, where our, like, uh, cabin is and fishing in the fjord.
2: Was your grandfather's name Robert, Robert Uva?
3: No, his name was Arthur. He did not have two names. Just a guess. It was
1: close enough. Yeah. I mean, he eats a lot of fish. In fact, Knivesgird writes that I couldn't stand fish. Wait, boiled really? cod, yeah, boiled cod, which we had at least once a week, made me feel nauseous, as did the steam Wait, from the pan in which it was cooked. Well, this is in his, his childhood state. There's also that great scene where he goes so to the fish, fish market. much fish in these books, though. Yeah, we well, definitely could...
2: devote an entire episode to his meals for sure, because there's a lot of writing about.
1: It's sort of dense his with meals them, and his domestic meals <laughs> Yeah,
2: most of which are really just a piece of bread with some fish on it, as far as I can tell. This
0: oh, sounds that's like what a good we ate,
1: baby.
2: Yeah. Wait, tell us more about Norwegian cuisine, Rob.
1: Yeah, I'd be interested in hearing about that. Yeah.
2: What are the staples the, of Norwegian cuisine?
1: The
3: staple of Norwegian cuisine is open face sandwiches, just slices of bread with stuff <laughs> on them.
2: And that's called a smorgasbord.
3: Uh my role, no, is that something it's else? It's called a it's called a brushiva.
2: Okay, that's not wait, like Which, bruschetta?
3: Uh well, I don't
2: bröshida. think bröshida.
3: Bröshida, Literally it literally means bread uh bread slice. Okay. But you can put you can put anything on the slice, but a lot of a lot of people put like fish products on it. So you have like you can buy like um, canned canned mackerel in like a tomato sauce.
2: Okay. A lot right. of people
3: use that. I, yeah, buy, Carl Oliva like,
2: definitely eats some of that in this. Oh, but...
3: uh, if he's if he's a Norwegian that eats fish, yeah, he's gonna be eating yeah. that for sure. And uh, we have like um, like sardines in... Like sour sardines is what they're called. They're like the most unappetizing looking thing ever. I do, I do not fuck with that. But, um,
2: sour sardines, yeah, that doesn't sound great.
3: Yeah, it's like very bad branding to me. I feel mm-hmm. like you, you would only, the only reason you would know that that was good is because somebody like forced to eat it at some point. Yeah.
0: Right? Uh, sound
3: and then we also have like, we also have like tubes of, um, fish egg paste. So it's like cav- okay. it's called caviar, but it's not caviar, but it's called caviar in Norwegian. And you like spread it on your sandwiches and like spread it out like it's cream cheese or whatever.
2: And does that, that taste is, pretty good?
3: It's not bad. I liked it when I was a kid, and I don't really like it now. But interesting. A, a lot of people eat it.
2: I feel like Carl Ufa would not like that. He has a lot of opinions. As if you listen to the earlier part of this podcast, he has a lot of opinions about food and the type of food that Swedish people eat in particular.
3: Yeah, it's, it's very interesting how how like similar. Like, like Norway and Sweden really are just, like, two sides of the same coin, but we all are just, like, look at the other side, like, ah, these, these fucking jackasses, look what they do. And they just do, like, a, a slight variation on the exact same <laughs> thing that we do. We're just, like, ah, weirdos.
2: Hell yeah. I like that. I like, And I feel like Carl Uva would approve of that, because something he bemoans is that the um, homogenization of the world, right, the developed world, nothing, there's no more distinction. Everyone, you know, capitalism kind of levels everything. Aesthetics are completely homogenized. But the oh fact that God. Sweden and Norway still feel themselves to be very different, even though they look pretty much the same to us, yeah, is uh, beautiful.
3: Anti-globalist Karlo Ignasgård.
2: He's definitely not a globalist. Q, He's QAnon. A globalist. I bet he Q-Anon could write a really Knesgård. beautiful book about QAnon,
3: actually. Oh, I, be- <laughs> I bet he finds those guys super, super effective. Yeah he's really not?
2: into christianity and yeah, he talks
3: about that i mean obviously now i'm i'm talking from a, a place of not having actually read the book but he talks <laughs> about that in the that little passage about the face in the lake oh, right yeah, his
2: father being like was it jesus
3: mm-hmm. yeah his dad just like making fun of him just shitting on him for being <laughs> <just shitting laughs>
2: Wait, his dad that's a good point actually his dad is kind of an asshole to he's his.
3: like yeah he's like his uh, first question like, is was
2: it jesus <laughs>
3: And then Carlos uh, says, he says that he is, doesn't feel like he's being trolled. But I, I'm like, how can you not? That's exactly what's going on.
2: So, I feel, Yeah, I feel like that is what's going on.
3: I love his dad. I don't, to see, I don't like, know. He's like, I have my one normal son and then I have my other son who's a Christian. And that's Like, really <laughs> possible thing. like I have my, just this like weird, weird pussy son that is just like seeing faces <laughs> in the lake. And, and my other son just plays soccer, you know, why can't he just be more like him?
2: But Carl Uffel also plays soccer. Which is probably my favorite thing about him. Is how normy he is in some ways.
0: He talks he about a it a lot in
2: this book. He like goes to... He's like a semi-good soccer player. I think he plays the equivalent of like travel soccer in Norway. Um, how do you pronounce his brother's name? Y-N-G-V-E. Uh Ingve. Ingve.
3: Hmm. By the yeah, way, this that is, is a little... also very very norwegian name
2: very norwegian name
0: yeah
2: His uh apparently i was looking this up the other day his uh his so his uncle gunnar which is not actually his real gunnar's real name because gunnar it's an alias but so his uncle gunnar blocked uh carl Uwe from publishing the name of his father his own father in this so you never
3: oh really
1: no right
2: yeah
3: he uh, i saw an article earlier that um that guy his uncle has been like very very anti like oh, very, Bernard, they have
2: a long standing feud He's very
3: a- loud about how much he dislikes him basically in norwegian yeah. media that is that's pretty
2: cool that's, though, that's to interesting have a though a long standing public to, feud with your uncle
3: i i yeah as That's like, oh, man. That's a cool A The longstanding public feud is one thing, but then it's just with your (laughs) uncle. I'm going to start a longstanding
2: feud with my uncle, Diogo. Which? uh, Diogo? Diogo? His name is Diogo.
1: What is a monkey's uncle? Is that a phrase?
2: Yeah, that is a phrase. Are you calling me a monkey? No.
1: But I was just thinking about having a feud, like, with a monkey's uncle. But a Wait, monkey have a was having
2: a feud with his uncle.
1: I was having a feud with my monkey's uncle or a monkey feuding with his uncle. okay. I would like to see it.
2: <laughs> Thanks for that contribution.
1: I'm just going and
3: letting language lead me you <laughs> gonna say that I was gonna say that earlier though, Lauren. like the partly like related to like the reaction that people have had to this book, I think is very interesting because the way. Like, the, the relationship that Norwegians have to kind of personal privacy is very interesting, like, the way it works. Especially with media, like, print media or news media and stuff. Like, like you are not – there's, like, this, like, unwritten code almost that, uh, that like, media outlets have to follow. Okay. Where they are not allowed to, like, publish – in 90% of cases, like, you're not allowed to publish the names of people involved. Say there's, like, a social – Like civil case or like a criminal case going on or something like that. Like, unless the person volunteers their name and the info about them, it's like very anonymous. Like, there'll be like uh, interesting news articles. Will be like woman found dead Mm -hmm. in in generally like in like general area of Oslo, and that's literally it. That's all you get. Damn. Just shit like that.
2: It seems very respectful.
3: it is but it's at the same time it's a little weird right because you think you have like a you have like a news media like in the u.s obviously they go they go way too far in some cases i think but like Mm -hmm. like putting people's mugshots on on news articles and all that kind of stuff but like in uh they are kind of they kind of curb the newspapers to a certain degree because you have to follow these ethics rules and if you don't follow the right. ethics rules you like lose certain privileges or whatever so i think it's interesting that he that his uncle has literally made it like gotten him blocked from even putting his dad's name in the book that's uh it kind of follows you know what i mean no that's, know, that's very it.
2: interesting and I wouldn't, I wouldn't have, have was, understood that otherwise So, yeah, so Carl Leuven, because I feel like even if he was an American author, this book would be pretty transgressive because he's kind of airing out all his dirty laundry. But as, like, with what you're saying, as a Norwegian, it's even more, like, um, offensive (laughs) to just, Mm -hmm. one of the funniest things I found while I was researching this is that he did a radio interview with his ex-wife, his first ex-wife, and they just, like, talked about the book. Oh, that's great. (laughs) And he said he made, he felt like he made a Faustian bargain which is that the price of his literary success was um, compromising. Everyone hating
3: his,
2: him. His relationships.
3: <laughs> yeah, I saw that. I think I saw that article too earlier when I was just uh, reading, reading about him a little bit. I think it is interesting the kind of, because Norwegians are very kind of like reality TV obsessed, or at least we have. Really been in the interesting. Last, but not have that we have been in the last few years. Yeah, it's been just like well, I mean, you know, if like anything, kind of, my
2: struggle is really just a very long keeping up with the car. Like a literary keeping up with the Kardashians.
3: Keeping okay. up with the Knall's Yeah, keeping
2: up with the Knall's yeah.
3: But I think like reality TV is almost like a like the way you get it presented to you is almost like a misnomer, right? Because it is it is very staged kind of inherently. So when Knall's Guard gives you that like real actual raw reality of like Oh, he gives you. Let me ju- <laughs> yeah. Let me just put everything on the table.
2: Yeah, with all uh, of the mundanity, the dead air,
3: yeah exactly so that yeah. that is like a, that provokes like a much more a much different reaction than when some like twenty one year old goes on a, a dating reality show and like has sex on TV or whatever, which is a common yeah. occurrence here
2: <laughs> it is that's a good way to think about it. It's just the most comprehensive reality show ever ever written. No, you're breaking up. Wait, keep talking.
1: Jimmy, Jimmy Wood. Jimmy, Jimmy Wood. Okay,
2: it's been been three weeks since we uh, did part of the podcast that you just listened to. Um, I have already learned to edit using the program Audacity. We put out a trailer. My friend Hannah listened to it, and she said that um, we should replace Drew with our friend Rob, the Norwegian who you just heard.
1: Are you serious
2: and, uh yeah, because he has like a cool alpha male you know Aryan voice
1: as opposed to my your
2: lumbering
1: lumbering nebbish.
2: your lumbering hebe voice my he voice so, uh, your lumbering heeb him, and it would we would get such a bigger listenership if Rob was the Rob he's so no, much Rob's more qualified cool. yeah he's first of all, he's Norwegian, second he's, of all, he's an essential worker, ladies why. He works at a grocery store. What? Uh, that's an essential worker.
1: Well, okay.
2: He's um he's a Gen Z, which is what I actually did look at our early metrics, and they said that we need to like learn how to cross over to Gen Z. So it would be helpful if we had like a Gen Z host instead of. He seems
1: like that. a very kind of he's sort of like a dapper. Aging guy.
2: millennials. You think he's dapper?
1: Oh, he seemed just he kind of. He seems sort of suave, or yeah, he's
2: suave and cool, unlike yourself. He's the suave and cool, uh, handsome Aryan,
1: but nobody's suave with a cool
2: alpha male voice
1: dedicate their lives to struggling.
2: That's a good point, actually, and that's why we can't actually have him replace you because otherwise, the struggle in my struggle would be lost. It's too easy to be a six foot five Aryan alpha male. (laughs) That's the In problem. That if you're
1: if you're a tall Jew, because no one really wants more Jew. <laughs> <laughs> uh,
2: it's true. Yeah. People people are done after five foot eight of Jew. They say yeah. Keep the you. Jew. Keep yeah. the Jew
1: closer to the ground. We don't need more. <laughs> we don't need. You just keep him away. This is a stridently anti-Semitic Jewish podcast.
2: Yes, it is. Yes, it is oh yeah okay we should probably start talking about um what we came here to talk about which is that i told you earlier in this podcast there was going to be a theoretical thrust and so far we have done very little theoretical thrusting uh due to being incredibly disorganized we tried to kind of raw dog it and just get into the text with rob but um it turns out we're not really skilled enough podcasters to just do that so which is why, as instead of just going straight into the text, we have a theoretical lubricant, if you will, <laughs> which is an essay by the acclaimed uh, literary critic James Wood. Of course, most get- people know him as a reactionary character actor and sexual abuser, but he's also, oh right, a literary critic and someone drew has once met do you want to get that out of the way drew and tell the story about how you met well
1: we've met a few times and we have a sort of interestingly intricate relationship Mm -hmm. i sent him a story of mine
2: did you guys kiss
1: no but i was gonna say that wood is yeah he's a lubricant because you get wood when you read him you know but um (laughs) but i do personally sometimes but uh yeah i sent him a story of mine when I was a mere adolescent and he told me that the story in his words prematurely ejaculated
0: mm-hmm.
1: and then I would sort of stalk him like a character from a Bologna novel and I would attend his various readings in the greater Boston area and kind of garrulously annoy him afterwards and then and every time I would preface it by saying I'm that kid that sent you that story Do you remember? <laughs> and then finally <laughs> I freak. I finally sent him an email when I got to Iowa uh, two years ago. And after six months, uh, he responded to me and said that, of course, he remembered my vivid writing. Um, oh, wow. And he, he sent a very humble email. He said he was, he, to use a British colloquial phrase, chuffed that I was.
2: Oh, he's about, British. That's right.
1: That I talked about him because I told at the workshop. So. hmm anyway but he's also been obviously a an intellectual literary hero of mine since then and formative yeah. influence
2: well to be honest it sounds like you were groomed by him but
1: ruined yeah well groomed you know, I, groomed oh <laughs> i at least said ruined i, I, I was, sounds like I you was, were
2: ruined by him
1: I was, I was i was to an extent i sort of groomed myself with his work but um
2: yeah. Can you groom I mean, yourself?
1: <laughs> I don't know. I mean, it really... He's sort of an Oedipal thing. I mean, he became a kind of literary father to me. Right. And, so and
2: for the for the listener, Drew doesn't have a father, and that's why mm-hmm. we'll make a lot of references Although I am to currently wearing... Figures.
1: I'm currently wearing an Iowa dad. Right. Yeah.
2: He is currently wearing an Iowa dad shirt and uh, a I, I cooking pork I guess, shoulder.
1: Yeah. So I'm sort of... Am I becoming my own dad or something? I don't know what's happening.
2: I can't wait for the day you marry some... A uh, very solid midwesterner and have like five kids like canal scored and know. you wear that shirt unironically.
1: then I can um, write books. book, so anyway, james wood
2: James had, wood was,
1: uh, also he I guess he's introduced me to so many writers, but he was the critic who introduced probably me and many others to to our man, Carl Uvi
2: karlouvauva Carl Knaus- I think I read.
1: I think I read this essay well before I even tried to engage with the with my struggle.
2: Yeah, this essay came out in 2012 in the New Yorker on August 6th and it is called Total Recall, which a uh, good one, James Wood. No one's ever used the name of that. This really Have you ever seen Total Recall? I don't think I have. Oh, it's such a great film. I love it. It's so good. It's also not really an appropriate title because that's not really what the essay is about. It's not about whether he remembers everything that happens to him. I mean, I guess it kind I've, of is.
1: Wood may very well not even have come up that's with That's a that good title.
2: point, actually. Never mind. Personally, as a journalist, I've never written a single one of my titles. And I once got canceled for a title I didn't write. So scratch that part.
1: But I don't know how things work in the, the vaunted pages of the New Yorker.
2: No, I doubt in the New Yorker people write their titles either. That's um, what they do
1: all day with their tote bags and horn <laughs> and glasses.
2: No, that's how they get the titles. Is they ask, they submit a query to the orb, the orb right. <laughs> wearing the glasses and the tote bag, and the then he returns the like, title. He just spits just it like, out.
1: It like drips out of his. Micro-
2: <laughs> it drips out of his, his mass, his pulsing mass.
1: The New Yorker, I heard, has a micro penis.
2: <laughs> Drew, we need to stop slandering the New Yorker
1: Oh my god, no, I would But, you know, so do I So that's why they should unite with I, me
2: I, for the record, would like to get published in the New Yorker one day And I want to say on the record I am agnostic as to whether New Yorker has a micropenis
1: I, I won't argue with that
2: Okay So the first thing I want to point out about this essay Before we really get into it Is James Wood, you fucking slob Guess what he calls our man in this? What? He calls him Carl. James as Wood, put- the August literary critic, cannot even bother to consult a real Norwegian as we did about the proper uh, nomenclature of this author. Is that true? Yes. And I underlined the part. Oh, yeah. This is when Wood is talking about how Carl, Carl Luffo writing about his densely ordinary child childhood. He says, when Carl tells us about how much he liked playing the guitar and how much he likes the equipment, he lists all of it. So fuck you, James Wood. I mean no never mind. Don't and we're just saying James Wood, maybe you should have, you know, had a cultural consultant or tried to be a little more sensitive as we did here. Yeah. That's an open challenge to James Wood. Please come on our podcast.
1: Oh shit. That's actually not a that's a great idea.
2: What, that we should call him out for calling him? No, Carl? we should bring for him call, on. For the- Carling her daddy. <laughs>
1: I think it's rather, rather realistic, actually, that we could bring him on the pod.
2: Between your having been groomed by him and my clout as a journalist, with I think if 3, you message him as a, on Twitter,
1: but I would like ambush him because you could message him as a journalist, and then he would get would get him on the pod, and I'd say, James,
2: remember <laughs> <me."> <laughs> he's like, oh god, this is my I worst the fear.
1: Boy? The boy sent you this the premature the boy?
2: Injection. I'm a man now.
1: I'm a man. I'm a heap. I'm an <laughs> Iowa dad now. Uh yeah, I would I would love to have Wood on the podcast. I think he would honestly relish the opportunity to expatiate at length on our man.
2: Yeah, so that's actually a good transition into you have a theory about wood slash canal scored And uh well, now to some, a it's hesitant. basically that they kissed each other, right?
0: They
1: they did butt stuff.
2: <laughs> uh, but seriously, uh, what's your theory about Wood and Canal Wood?
1: Well, my theory is that Wood lionizes Carl Ova <laughs> because Carl Ova has sort of achieved for uh, a free artistic life for right. himself in a way that Wood has not, although. They're both kind of house husbands in a sense. They're both domesticated, but.
2: Both Carl, domesticated men.
1: But Knowsgaard has this intense creative life where, where Wood is a bit more, you know, chained, uh, shackled by his critical faculties.
2: Did you ever read that, uh, there was another Carl Luva review where he talked about how Carl Luva mentions at some point in my struggle about how his worst fear was becoming a critic. I didn't know that. Yeah, he says his worst fear was becoming a critic rather than a real writer, which is yeah. fucking harsh.
1: I mean, to be fair, Wood Wood's a great writer on his own terms. In his criticism, as a novelist, he's been less successful. So I think it's interesting, too, that, Canasgard has it has succeeded there, or Wood has failed perhaps. But also Canasgard, you no, know, he's not. I think Wood appreciates him for being uh, unconventional. Um,
2: yeah, he is. He's kind of a kind of got that cowboy spirit. Yeah,
1: and I think huh. like you know Wood to put it crudely, Wood's kind of like a nerd compared to Canasgard. Like yeah,
0: <laughs> yeah. He's,
1: He's like a bookish dude, bald, bespectac- bespectacled.
2: Yeah, Knausgaard is the guy with the long hair and the leather jacket in the cafeteria who's yeah, although maybe in a shitty band.
1: There's some movie where like Knausgaard beats James Wood then, and then Woods oh still then craves his attention. So he like writes these really glowing reviews of his work <gasps> later on. Ooh, then- Drew,
2: you're like writing fan fiction right now.
1: I know, but that's sort of germane.
2: Well, James True. Wood, you know, if you're listening to this, let us know. Did Carl Lueva Knausgaard beat you up? And is that why you wrote a good review? <laughs> in the New I, I,
1: I don't want to tarnish the name of James Wood. I do have a serious relationship with his work, and I'd yeah. love to engage with him on a serious level. But I do wonder about his kind of psychological interaction with, with Knausgaard. Um, Yeah.
2: Um, But today we should probably just focus on this essay, which again is called Total Recall. And in the Google Doc, Drew, if you're looking at it right now, I identified three uh, strains to discuss. And the pressure is all on you to draw these out because you have a master of the fine arts and literature, and I do not. I'm a mere journalist and a woman at that, so my brain can't quite comprehend the depths of theory being broached in this. So the first strain is death. And so I think just to establish the tone and the thesis of this essay, I'd like to read the first two paragraphs to you. Walter Benjamin, in his great essay, The Storyteller, written in the 1930s, argues that classic storytelling is structured around death. It is the fire at which listeners warm their hands. But these days, he suggests that hearth is cold and empty. Benjamin notes that death has disappeared from contemporary life, safely shuffled away to the hospital, the morgue, the undertaker. Instead of the news of death, there is just news. If the art of storytelling has become rare, the dissemination of information has had a decisive share in the state of affairs, Benjamin writes. I sometimes think that the old leather couch Tolstoy put in his study would be a good symbol of the mortal pulse that Benjamin was talking about. Tolstoy's mother had given birth to him on this couch. She died when he was nearly two years old. Most of his 13 children, five of whom died in childhood, were born on it, too. Was it not possible that one day he might lie on that same piece of furniture and die there? It would be hard to write in such a study while oblivious of death as a life rhythm, of life as a death cycle. A fair amount of contemporary prose seems to have been written by people who, like Tolstoy's Ivan Illich, refuse to accept that he will die. There is a puerile or evasive quality in many new novels, not to mention movies, especially in America, where infinite information promises to outlive us and dazzle down the terminality of existence. Are there serious contemporary writers who remind us of our mortality? The 43-year-old Norwegian novelist Karl Uwe Knausgård is certainly one. His long, intense, and vital book, My Struggle, is so powerfully alive to death that it sometimes seems like a kind of huge ramshackle annex. To means brief thesis.
1: You see, Wood is quite good at metaphor.
2: Wood is, I think Wood is flexing yeah. with on Carl Luevva with his uh, with his ability for his capacity for metaphor here, because the rest of this essay is kind of devoted to roasting on Carl Uva for how uh, cliche his metaphors are.
1: But I I, I don't think that's actually uh, criticizing his use of cliche. I think he's almost praising it.
2: Well. Yeah, let's get to that in a second, because I don't think he's really, but I still well, I do think, think he's flexing on him a little bit.
1: Maybe, but I also think he's trying to show that Knausgaard kind of, you know, breathes new life into those cliches, or it doesn't want to waste time with being what uh, the critic Edmund Wilson calls a professional, beautiful writer. You know, he has no he has right. no interest. Right, exactly.
2: So, I mean, so- these things all kind of tie together, kind of Knausgaard's unbeautiful writing style, and... The idea that literature is about death, but I want to talk about this theme of great storytelling being about death a little bit more what so drew what do they teach you in your m f a about death and literature
1: i'm trying to um, it's, i'm 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 struggling to actually think about death as a subject or a kind of visceral theme here at the workshop, probably because I would say that we almost suffer from what wood has diagnosed the kind of uh refusal or denial of death um especially because you're dealing with a lot of young egotistical artists who are already convinced of their own artistic immortality
2: like which yourself. is not
1: to, yeah not not to be um dismissed. <laughs> it's it's vital to the work itself but i'd certainly think knosgard's work i've read a few things like it well at all but especially here where I would argue the traditional workshop short story if such a thing exists is more like a mere slice of of life or a kind of unintentional uh, literary fanfic.
2: Right. So I want to draw this out a little bit because it may not be clear to our listener what exactly we're talking about. So the distinction Wood is making here is what. He's saying that classically literature was about (laughs) man's mortality. And in these great stories, you were at all points reminded of death and that it is just around the corner and humans are temporary, right? And classically, that uh, was like in, you know, for example, an adventure story or Shakespeare, people are literally dying all the time or getting murdered, or they're like these, you know, Westerns, which I've been reading a lot of recently. are these survival Westerns? stories. Westerns? Yeah, I've been reading a lot of Westerns lately.
1: It's basically ashes to ashes, dust to dust.
2: Yeah. And because that is the ultimate reality of our existence that we will die, it's probably the most important thing you can confront in literature. And what Wood is saying is that novels don't do that anymore. Is that did I kind of sum that up correctly?
1: Basically, I would say that it goes even beyond confronting uh and it extends to the very impulse of the writing itself that there's, yeah, there's a deep visceral engagement with death, the inevitability of death. And also the, and Knozgaard himself writes about this, the physical facts and kind of tangible messy details of death that as Kenosgard says, we seem now to have kind of, you know, sequestered away. that we're not we don't we don't watch you could very well live well you could live your whole life as opposed without seeing a human being die uh you know in the flesh without sort of being subsumed in i think what james wood is actually elsewhere called as he says here the culture a culture of death um there is a kind of delusion that you know, that we maybe have succumbed to wherein we think we're just like floating floating away from anything that can kill us, corrode us. Um, right. And
2: why is that? Part of that is the material changes in the developed world, right? This is not necessarily true in third world countries, but in the developed right. world, we are insulated from death to a great extent. So back in the day when we were all peasants, probably what? It was very possible your mother died in childbirth. It's possible you had, you know, half of your siblings died of childhood diseases, right? They're saying here at Tolstoy, uh, five of his 13 children died in childhood. Right. Um, You know, you had crop failures. There was war constantly. It was all around you. It was unavoidable and people accepted it. But now people, you know, we live these existences where we don't actually produce anything. You know, we have salaries, and, you know, you can extend life, not indefinitely, but for a really long time with all this advanced technology. And maybe for that reason, you know, at the same time, now death is hidden away. And almost it's almost as if, like, you know, late capitalism is about completely trying to hide or obscure the fact of death. And that is reflected in a lot of modern novels, which don't seem... Really concerned too much with life and death, so much as kind of trivial aesthetic things or, yeah, prestige or, you know, these classic novels about people in Brooklyn feeling. I don't know. I don't fucking read contemporary fiction. Give an example. I I don't read contemporary fiction.
1: Yeah, I'm trying to think about. I think Wood, when he's sort of talking about books that seem allergic to death or or delusional about death he's also probably kind of harping on his usual theme of um you know being against what he called hysterical realism
2: interesting expand on
1: that well he made his a name for himself in the early 2000s by uh somewhat harshly criticizing a group of writers that were considered uh to be you know canonical i suppose already in the 90s and early 2000s people like Rush. uh well thomas pynchon David Foster Wallace, DeLillo, and a few others who whose work I think he kind of saw as fundamentally almost in, inhuman or inhumane or um, shallow for for many reasons, but one of which, and he gets on this here, is that it's sort of they, their work existed in a kind of endlessly replicable you know mass produced state of mind that i guess you could say does represent something about american life in the in late stage capitalism but as literature it's kind of like an endless like a form like a formlessness and death obviously in in our actual physical lives but also in literature gives literature form, right? I mean, if you think about it, like a Greek tragedy,
2: for example. Exactly, exactly. It's
1: all formed around death. And obviously, you know, yeah, Shakespeare continues this on. And the novel is a more somewhat of an amorphous form um, to begin with. But I'm pretty sure you could find most novels or at least classic novels, perhaps, if that phrase is okay, do have a form, you know, that's built around death. They're formed by death. So, uh, and I think he's detecting that in Knausgaard as opposed to these kind of uh, more contemporary writers who just have a kind of endless, lightweight fascination with their own trivialities or, right. or the trivial, yeah. or the trivialities of a poisoned culture. So and then it and then they can just say, oh well the reason my work is uh, you know, endlessly um parodic or or silly or without any sense of death is that I'm I'm merely mimicking the culture. But so then you get in this kind of endless loop of
2: Ah, I see.
1: Of a kind of postmodern meaninglessness ultimately. I mean in a way that that those group of writers they already seem a little dated now. I mean, I don't know if they even have the same stature that they did when Wood first criticized them. I have no idea. But but Asgard seems like in many ways to be a rejoinder to those writers and kind of an embodiment of just the things that Wood was advocating for when he wrote that essay, a more humane and perhaps grounded literature but that was also highly, you know, intricate and intellectual in its own way.
2: I mean, basically, I think he's, isn't Wood saying that Carl Lucey Knauskowd is the only serious writer we have now? That,
0: I mean, not to be too crude
2: about it, but he's really, everyone else basically is trivial compared to Knauskowd because they're so preoccupied with their dumb idiot lives and they imagine them to be interesting. And, right, it's very easy to parody or to satirize Knauskort and be like, oh, there's a guy who's just writing about, uh, you know, going to the coffee shop and taking his kid to rhythm time at the library. But I think the whole point of this endless, exhaustive, and sometimes uh, laborious cataloging of trivialities is that he doesn't imagine any of these aspects of his life are interesting in any way. I feel like every time Carl Leuwey talks about a triviality or a detail, it's ter- it, he is in a way, reminding us of the pointlessness of life and
1: therefore yeah i mean of course his work you know trivialities is a good word but also maybe a crude one because of course karlov uh in his own way is totally consumed with triviality or i mean the sort of mundanity mundanities of daily life um but obviously those are inflected by or haunted in a real way by death
2: exactly yeah exactly
1: um which is why too you know if you look at ken books the uh, at least the first two books are sort of framed by the death of his father and then um the birth of his very of his children right. so i think those 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 sort of fleshly fleshly realities of of life and death literally I mean they do shape the books those are like if the second book is essentially you know structured almost around uh, birth
2: right right so (laughs) that's a good I, I think we should go into talking about the structure a little bit more and how death informs the structure of these books which by the way we've only read the first two uh, we can't admit but, that. We cannot
1: admit that on the pod. Okay, I'll edit it We've out. read all I don't even know uh, how many
2: there are. <laughs> uh, there's six.
1: I've read all twenty.
2: You've read all yeah, I've read Drew's read all twenty. I've read all thirty-three of these books.
1: And I've read uh, all twenty of Mind Kampf.
2: Yep. But so Drew is getting at this. And so I think let me actually I just want to read from Wood again because I think he again very brilliantly. Please lectures. captures how this book is structured.
1: Give me some wood.
2: There is a flatness and prolixity to the prose. The long sentences have about them an almost careless avant-gardism, with their conversational additions and splayed run-ons. The writer seems not to be selecting or shaping anything, or even pausing to draw breath. Cliché is not spurred. Time is falling through Knausgård's hands, like sand. Elsewhere in the book, the author tells us that falling in love was like being struck by lightning, that he was head over heels in love, that he was hungry as a wolf. There is perhaps something, something a little gauche about his confessional volubility. But there is also a simplicity, and openness, and an innocence in his relation to life, and thus in his relation to the reader. Where many contemporary writers would reflexively turn to irony, Knauskiewicz is intense and utterly honest, unafraid to voice universal anxieties, unafraid to appear naive or awkward. Although his sentences are long and loose, they are not cutely or aimlessly digressive. Truth is repeatedly being struck at, not chatted up.
1: So that's why I said also, though, I think it was actually a good passage to read because it shows that Wood is not simply, you know, somewhat shallowly criticizing him for weak writing or writing that's not beautiful or precise or original in a way we might expect in a novel. In fact, you know, Knossgaard is using cliche because, yeah, because he doesn't want to waste time necessarily crafting beautiful sentences. Although of course his own sentences, as Wood points out, have a their own style. But um you know, he's also trying to show, I think that sometimes like the cliche well, they're cliches for a reason, right? I mean and yeah. it's a kind of like shared truth.
2: Right. He almost he trusts the reader to understand that falling in love is like being struck by lightning although personally i think it's more like being uh, hit by a ton of bricks you know we get what he means and i think he's not um i really liked what wood was getting at toward the end of that last paragraph i read which was that he is never ever teasing the reader or condescending to the reader Mm. he is so serious with the reader he assumes the reader will be able to relate simply by virtue of being human like i think there was quite a universalism to his writing, even though, you know, you could criticize it as being about the extremely mundane life of some Scandinavian creative class professional in Stockholm. But I think there's also like that long, long, long opening to book two where he's at that child's birthday party, which personally I love, I love that whole passage, but, you know, on this very surface level, it's about, um, you know, kind of bourgeois, bourgeois, um, uh, what is it? Triviality, triviality, and frivolity, frivolity, and being mad about the Swedish quinoa sheep and all of their I would be mad whole about grain. The that actually is kind of cruel. I think to make children eat like quinoa at their own birthday party. Who the fuck makes? Just a give them eat a hot quinoa? dog. Seriously.
1: I, yeah, yeah give them... Give them hot dogs and and beer. There's fucking yeah. They're
2: six years old. Let them drink beer already.
1: <laughs> I will let any child of mine have a nice brew.
2: Well, yeah, because you're gonna be married to some Scandinavian Midwestern lady anyway. What gives you, you live that in idea? A cabin, <laughs> and you'll live in a cabin, mm-hmm. and you'll brew your own beer, <laughs> and the children will drink beer. I, I
1: hope. That, I hope. I hope that turns out to be so. You know
2: yeah she'll be a stout a stout woman and like she'll have those like pretzel braided pigtails like you know on each side like the you know what I'm trying to talk about like the I know what you're talking about yeah those wrapped don't... braids around each ear and she'll be wearing like a later
1: <laughs> okay now we're getting a bit <laughs> a bit Nazi or something
2: she'll say this is my, my he him husband Andrew. I
1: just don't like the word I think you said stocky stocky woman. <laughs>
2: <laughs> are you fat shaming your
1: future life. I, <laughs> I, I would prefer her to be svelte. Svelte? Okay.
2: Well, it's, you're not exactly spell yourself, so it seems a little sexist. Well, to
1: it's a double. It's a. It's a. It's a, it's a double
2: standard. Okay. Well, at least as long as we're admitting it's a double standard, it's fine. Uh. So what were we talking about? Oh, we were talking about we were trying and not very successfully trying to smoothly transition from talking about death into talking about uh, Knausko's unbeautiful writing style so let's make this explicit what is the connection between this preoccupation or not a preoccupation but a very serious um attempt to confront mortality and canal kind of objectively unbeautiful or flat writing what is the connection there
1: yeah i think the connection is as we said there's no time to waste crafting beautiful prose yeah uh and and connected to that, there's an acceptance of maybe a kind of, like, more homespun or mundane language that is unafraid of cliche because sometimes cliche is true. Um, yeah, I
2: mean, there's a reason why it, that particular yeah. phrase caught on whenever it did as people were like, oh, that is true. When I'm hungry, I do feel like a wolf.
1: I mean, I think Whatever. it's also important, like, there are other writers that would play with cliché in a kind of like, you know, clever way. Like um, sure. They would like pun on it or they'd do wordplay. I like that kind of stuff. But yeah. Asgard, at least No, he's never the,
2: cute or clever in this.
1: Yeah, he's not being cute. I mean, he, I, 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 but I don't know. It'd be interesting. Like, I don't know if he's... I don't know how he speaks in real life. I, I mean, I've heard interviews, but somehow his writing doesn't seem necessarily like a direct embodiment of his speech. I feel like he's probably, I, I, he seems to be sort of terser and kind of more stilted in speech. Obviously, why not? Why shouldn't he be? But we all yeah, are. Yeah, but- because
2: I think the thing is, uh, he finds speech difficult because it is, it's almost another way of lying, right? Remember that quote I sent you? I think it was this morning from that other book I'm reading about how, in a way, yes. you know, writers are fakers. They're people who lie to you and they kind of manipulate you. I never and,
1: liked that idea. I, I think that's sort no, of... No,
2: a- I think it is true. I think writers can... I mean, I don't know. Let's, let's talk about this because I think that good writers can um, simply with like, you know, with some kind of literary artifice, they can kind of gloss over the matter at hand. Do You know what I mean? Like they can use beautiful sentences or kind of literary gambits to... Get around what which I think would is saying here to get around the most important fundamental issue, which is that of mortality or you know other hard truths uh-huh.
1: yeah, I mean, I think that's a certain kind of like meretricious writer uh, but i I also would say that there are writers who conversely want to you know. Live inside truth and uh, speak its language as such as, as much as they can, although, like, of course, you, right,
2: I, it's not all writers. But I'm saying like yeah.
1: not all writers,
2: not all um, writers.
1: Oh no, clearly, Knazgard's not like you know, kind of, or like you know, Henry James would. He not that his work was uh, in denial of death. Uh, to the contrary, but. You know, he was famous for like you could go through his journals and see all the episodes that he overheard at his various dinner parties, and you know he would like take these like notes about how he was going to transform them into fiction, and he was always sort of you know stealing from life. Um, oh, I mean, look, of...
2: I'm a nonfiction writer, obviously. I think that's
1: no, it's fine to steal do. from life, but yeah, I don't yeah. think. I mean, it's weird because Knazgard, of course, does write into or about his life, but I don't think of him as sort of like conspiring with himself about oh how am I gonna use no, that No, 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 not at all. Time. So
2: yeah, to go back to the point I was trying to make, it's that I was trying to, to connect it to his uh or what he reports as his absolute inability to uh function in social situations and to make small talk with people. He talks mm-hmm. about how painful it is to him. And I think it's because small talk and kind of polite cocktail conversation talk is a way of avoiding death right it's like you're you're talking just to talk and Mm -hmm. i think that when in that type of conversation obviously mortality is not on the table because you know in polite society you don't bring it up and but and so what i'm saying is he has this urgency in his writing which is a need to make everything or connect everything to the most important thing which is mortality and which is why I think, like we were saying, his writing is so unbeautiful and plain is that urgency. And yeah, so I was trying to connect that to his, mm-hmm. you know, yeah. lack of ability to speak well.
1: I mean, again, it's funny because, I mean, it's precisely that, you know, his being in tune with the death impulse or the, you know, the narrative drive that extends from death to be, to quote the Walter Benjamin thing, that allows him or forces him to actually fill his text with mundane, you know, boring life. I mean, that's the sort of irony, I guess, um, here in that. But, you know, it, it, like, I guess, you know, in Wood's terms, if you're a your typical, like, you know, too clever by half American writer, you know, he can't walk inside a supermarket without writing a little, like, New Yorker talk of the town piece and all, like, <laughs> the kind of, like... Damn,
2: we're really going hard on the New Yorker here.
1: Sorry. It was just appear there, whatever. Like, the kind of, you know, without coming up with some, like, fancy, clever, ironic take right, on... Right, right. Oh, here's what I, saw, right. you know...
2: Reading too uh, much into the organic foods aisle. Sometimes an eat, organic yeah. foods aisle is just an organic foods aisle. <clears throat>
1: like what is the meaning of um selecting quinoa in the midst of covid-19 Oh, come
2: on just, yeah seriously whatever
1: it's it's too easy to, it's too easy but um but like kanagawa is clearly very immersed in everyday life but it's yeah, yeah he's not sort of cloyingly trying to come up with a clever or kind of um Ironic take, you know, hey, I mean I, I, I think he
2: kind of takes the I think by so studiously cataloging all of this stuff in a completely unmediated way, he almost removes some of the I guess you could say offensiveness of it or the sting of it, right? He, remo- yeah. he removes the the offensiveness of this quinoa trying to convince you that death is not imminent by simply cataloguing it as the mundane thing that it is. Just another distraction.
1: It's- it's strange because I don't have the book in front of me, which is bad. But
2: Drew did not prepare to <laughs> well. I'm Andrew. Did th- not come prepared to class today.
1: The reason is that I, I I I'm a transient right now who doesn't really have a well okay. place of habitation. Anyway, he there's a there's a blurb or a quotation from a review. By someone who I forget, that said that the reason this book is is so engrossing is because of Kenazgard's fascinating quote, "underground man consciousness," which I sort of see, but I actually kind of very much disagree with that. I don't.
2: Okay, expand it's, on it's, that.
1: It's just sort of treating Kenazgard as this kind of a dark or twisted individual who is existing in this, you know, superficial everyday life, and it's sort of treating him as. Um, you know, a kind of like idiosyncratic um, writer figure who is at odds with with society in some way, uh, and like you know, underground man consciousness. Uh, like okay,
2: does, like Dostoevsky. Kind of like dark,
1: yeah, dark Dostoevsky and um, refusal and sort of spite, but I don't. The irony is that I mean, I don't really, I don't, I don't feel that at all. Reading his work because I agree,
0: I, I agree. Like, and if
1: anything, he seems to be, and maybe this is, you could argue, and we should talk about this too. Like, it's sort of a pose, perhaps. Or I mean, I don't know if it's a pose, but it's uh, the pattern that he chooses to re- to reveal here. That he reveals uh, himself to be a kind of like every every man. It's the it's the opposite. Like, right. um, He's just a normal kid. I mean, what sets him apart, if anything? I guess is his desire to and you know to chronicle, although that word seems wrong, his 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 struggle, his life. But you know, I would argue that what's appealing about the books is 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 their very normality, if we can use a word, or just kind of that word, or kind of um their their mundane, you know, the mundane texture of, of his life and of his consciousness because the truth is I guess he's a little anxious or awkward, but I don't really think of him as an eccentric at all.
2: No, no, he's not. He's not. And he's not a nihilist, which I think Mm -hmm. maybe we've been almost veering into painting him as, although he finds, I think a lot of ordinary life to be incredibly superficial and meaningless. He never comes to the conclusion that therefore life is uh, completely devoid of meaning. And in fact, as Wood talks about in this essay, so much of the book is about trying to preserve or recover meaning from life. And he always believes it's there.
1: I guess you could argue he's abnormal or idiosyncratic because today it is more acceptable to, you know, come up with your hot take, uh, with your quinoa, whatever.
2: Right, in The New Yorker.
1: As opposed to... Actually, just saying, asking the like the most these like seemingly naive or fun, uh, immature or even ad- I think adolescent is the word that I think would or maybe we've even used to describe Knausgard a- approvingly.
0: These yeah, adoles- yeah, yeah. The, these
1: sort of adolescent questions like, what does it all mean? Why, why am I here? Uh, why do I do any? Why do I reproduce and um, uh, and walk around in the grocery store? If i know i'm I'm going to die and everyone I love is going to die i mean they sound it sounds like maybe verging on a kind of pretentious or platitudinous <coughs> um line of questioning but if you actually if you actually like live those questions and sort of patiently dramatize them uh it's obviously still striking, and also i guess it is strange in to do that in this current in this, in this discourse that we're and,
2: right i think he actually there's a very lovely digression and i think early in book two where he talks about how now you know wondering about meaningful meaningfulness or meaninglessness is you know something confined to the adolescent and i think he actually does even invoke dostoevsky and he kind of yeah not angrily but a little sadly bemoans that you know why are adults not allowed to talk about this type of stuff anymore um and i think it may even be counter uh Posed with his trip to one of those bougie grocery stores in Stockholm. <laughs> uh, if anyone is wondering why we keep bringing this up.
1: Yeah, uh, I mean, I also would just say that Knozgaard, um isn't afraid of simply showing him, you know, it's weird. Like, I, don't, I think of his work as essayistic, but he's not necessarily expounding on the meaning of, of the grocery store. Uh, and even no, though his work is sort of. And I mean, it's interesting that you use the word, um, yeah, the word that's obviously tossed around with Knozgaard is digressive, is, digre- is you know, the digression uh, as, a, yeah. as, a, as a form. But I think Wood also points out that, yeah, his digressions are not sort of merely these kind of like frivolous factoids because-
2: They're not you know, David Foster of, Wallace cutesy digress.
1: Exactly, like if you think about a lot of, um, you know, what we might just call like postmodern writing say yeah. of a certain American breed, you will get these like, you know, little essays on, and then he thought of uh, the first time he saw the film Total Recall, and
2: <laughs>
1: or, or and then some like essay on yeah yeah, yeah. the the person... I'm guilty of
2: that in my writing a little bit, really like
1: the the director and like the whole weird you know
2: yeah
1: narrative there. But could I... and the irony is like I guess on the surface Osgard does. Seem to do that. I remember in the second book, he like writes about his relationship with like Charlie Chaplin. But it it actually even then, it doesn't feel it's not simply kind of brandishing like uh, kooky factoids or no, it's
2: still urgent
1: information. It's not simply information. Like that's a word that Wood always uses, obviously often negatively, to say that uh, you know these kind of um, these sort of anti you know these light not light, but hysterical realist, let's say he his phrase um, novels that um, exist in a kind of just laughingly digressive state uh, and that they want to just brandish information. It's all about facts and information as opposed to,
0: you
2: know.
1: Well, because no cannot... amount of
2: information will, you know, help you avoid the, the ultimate fact. Some of it, yeah. yeah. Some of it is just insulating yourself in it, or um, getting flabby, flabby with information. A lot of these texts are, whereas where you could say Canalesgard is, you know, he has a lot of digression. The text is not flabby; it's always returning to the same thing. It's always yeah, um, urgent and has a vision.
1: That's why Canalesgard is actually strangely, perhaps, you know, way more readable and engrossing uh, than those other writers. Or yeah, because many. he's so
2: serious. It's like a, yeah. he takes you seriously, and I really, I really appreciate that.
1: Uh, those people give me the willies, <laughs> and the heebie-jeebies to boot.
2: And the heebie-jeebies.
1: You think heebie-jeebies is an anti-Semitic term?
2: <laughs> Yeah, I think it definitely is. It sounds like oh, I'm no two of ways that about heeb. it. Can you still say heeb?
1: I say it. I employ it on a daily basis. Almost. Yeah, I
2: call you. I call you a heeb. You I, yeah, a I heeb. call
1: myself. I refer to myself as a heeb. Like today, heeb is gonna drink some coffee.
2: That's your pronoun. You're, you're a heeb yeah. slash
1: him. He, <laughs> heeb him.
2: He's a heeb him.
0: That's a good band name. Actually, heeb him. You
2: have to be the first people
0: who have thought of that.